You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. How many of you brought your scriptures today? Maybe some of you are like me. You love hard copies of the Word of God. Listen, I love my U version, and I love to be able to go and look at various versions of the scriptures, but I love uh, the hard copy and the paper uh, and just the, the smell of leather and all of that, but um, I'm a Bible nerd, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. Today, we want to speak about a couple of things. It may not be so exciting for you today, but I feel it's foundational for us, and I hope it's life-giving to you today. I want to speak for a few minutes to you and with you about Rachamim and rest, the power twins in discipleship, Talmud discipleship. We've been traversing through the Gospel of Luke. I was reminding Darcy last night that this is our 25th anniversary leading tree of life, and we've gone through quite a bit of the scriptures. In fact, when we finish the gospel of Luke, I'll have completed all of teaching and preaching through the new covenant and the bulk of the Tanakh as well. Well, what are you going to do, Rabbi, when you finish all that? I'll go back and I'll start over again because I've missed a lot even going through it in this way, line upon line, precept upon precept. But all of Adonai's mitzvot, all of his commandments can be summarized in two distinct directives. What are they? Love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeshua said that all the Torah and the prophets are summarized in these two directives. You see, love is not a feeling. It is something we do, right? It is a verb. For example, it's often said that a song is not a song until it's sung. A bell is not a bell until it's rung. And love is not love until you give it away. We left off in the The Gospel of Luke two weeks ago with Yeshua's story in response to a Torah lawyer's expert questions. The first of his questions was in chapter 10, what should I do to gain eternal life? I want to welcome those of you who are watching live via Facebook right now and on our YouTube page tomorrow. And maybe you're listening to the audio in your car on our podcast in Apple iTunes or maybe another platform, Pandora, etc. It's great to be with you wherever you're listening to this message. We discovered the word do in that question spoiled his question. We cannot do anything to gain eternal life. It's already been done for us. But now the Torah lawyer has another she'ilah, another question. Verse 29, Luke chapter 10. But wanting to vindicate himself, he said to Yeshua, then who is my neighbor? And so this Torah lawyer reads Yeshua's reply in the previous verse as not answering his question specifically enough. And so he subsequently asked, what is the scope of this call to love the neighbor? Is everyone a neighbor? And have I fulfilled it? In other words, the lawyer realized the only way he's possibly going to fulfill the Torah's command was to limit its demand. Thereby, the scriptures record trying to vindicate himself, i.e. to declare himself righteous. Now, this is really an improper question because the Torah lawyer, he's trying to exclude responsibility for others by making some people into the category of non-neighbor. The suggestion that some people are non-neighbors is what Messiah is responding to here. A more appropriate question for the lawyer would have been, how can I be a loving neighbor or whose neighbor am I? The Greek word here for neighbor, plezion, means one who is near, but it comes from the Hebrew 
word that it translates, re'ah, meaning a person with whom one has something to do. Again, the Jewish people interpreted the word in a limited sense to mean a, a fellow Jew, a fellow Israelite, or someone in the same religious community. They specifically excluded Samaritans, Gentiles from that category. In a sense, these were the non-neighbors. And so we will see here in our story that Yeshua picks a Samaritan as the highlight of the parable because such a person is a non-neighbor in the eyes of this lawyer. Stated another way, Yeshua tells a story here to correct the lawyer's false understanding of who his neighbor was and to clarify his duty to his neighbor. Beyond that, Yeshua wants the lawyer to see how far short actually he did fall of keeping the Torah so that he would realize his need for an imputed righteousness. And so we move on in verse 30. Yeshua replied back to him, a certain man was going down from Yerushalayim to Yercho. He was attacked by robbers who stripped him and beat him. Then they left, abandoning him, abandoning him as half dead. And by chance, a Kohen was going down that road, but when he saw the man, he passed by on the opposite side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the opposite side. But a Samaritan who was traveling came upon him, and when he noticed the man, he felt rachamim. He felt compassion. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then setting him on his own animal, he brought him to a lodge for travelers and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever else you spend upon my return, I will repay you myself. And the question back to the lawyer was, what, which of these three seems to you a neighbor to the one attacked by robbers? And he said to Yeshua, the one who showed mercy to him, then Yeshua said back to him, go and do the same. Three different attitudes we see here. In this passage, if you're taking notes on your app or maybe in, with a pen or pencil in your notebook, first there is the attitude of the robbers, right? The robbers. What's yours is mine. This is their attitude. What your, what's, what's yours is mine and we'll take it. You see, the route of this 17-mile Jericho Road, you, still visible today, included long stretches along that road of rocky terrain. It made it useful as a base of operations for robbers. The cultural equivalent today might be, you know, taking a trip through the parts of an inner city at night, middle of the night or something. But we know that in Yeshua's day, many people did not have extra clothes, which were consequently a valuable item to, to steal. But though clothes were a valuable commodity, completely stripping this man treated him like a corpse on a battlefield or something. We find that there are still folks today with this unloving attitude. That's why we have locks. That's why we have keys. That's why we have police. That's why we have criminal courts. That's why we have prisons, etc. And most of us, we're reading this and we feel pretty doggone superior to these bits. We would never steal, or would we? If we cheat on our expense account or on our tax returns, hello? What's the difference? None of us can get too comfortable because we all struggle with Secondly, we find a different attitude, the Kohen and the Levite. Their attitude is, what's mine is mine, and we'll keep it. The Kohen, who were the Kohanim? They were the descendants of Aaron. They had priestly responsibilities in the Jerusalem temple. What were those duties? Performing Zebachim, sacrifice. They would maintain the premises. They would provide instruction. And the Levite, a member of the tribe of Levi, who assisted the Kohanim, although they were not descendants of Aaron, these both of them passed by and they simply refused to help this man in need. Now, 
We know that Jericho, Yercho, was a city of the Kohanim and the Levi'in, the Levites. Thousands of them actually lived in Jericho. They would frequently pass by that way to minister in the temple up in Jerusalem. And so I wanted to quickly look at both of these gentlemen as well. First, Yeshua described the Kohen as, quote, happening by chance to take the journey that brought him into contact with this unfortunate victim. This fact in no way excused the Kohen's failure to show love, but it might suggest, at least from the viewpoint of the priest, his discovery was accidental. He happened on him accidentally. The Kohen failed here to act in love, even though common courtesy demanded that he stop and render aid. Moreover, the priest had just been in Jerusalem. He had just been in the center of worship. He had just been, uh, and he had spiritual influence there. But he didn't want to take the chance of contracting impurity as a Kohen. The Bible calls the Kohanim a chief man among his people, Leviticus 21. He didn't want to take the chance by contracting impurity by touching a corpse, as the man looked like he might be a corpse. He's been stripped all the way. Now, since lawyers were often Kohanim, this lawyer might have seen himself in this character in his parable. Secondly, we find the Levite repeating the Kohen's act here. He was actually a less likely person to offer help since his duties, assuming that he fulfilled those duties, involved just assisting the Kohanim in the affairs involved in worship. But he also wished, again, to avoid defilement in, in fact, if in fact this man had died. Perhaps he also recognized that involvement with quote-unquote problem people would entangle him in an embarrassing situation, a difficult and even maybe a dangerous situation. But whatever the reason was, he also likewise passed by on the other side. Both the attitude of the Kohen and the Levite is still common today. Have you ever thought to yourself or said to yourself, or maybe you've actually said it out loud, it's not my problem. I don't want to get involved. You see, the robber was guilty here. These robbers were guilty for sure. But according to Yeshua, these two Jewish leaders were also guilty of the command from Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor. You see, if we have the opportunity to show love and kindness to someone in need and we don't do it, we're guilty. Last Sunday, uh, as I've been, we've been working out for about four years now, actually three because the gyms have been closed. So we're just kind of trying to figure that whole thing out. But I was driving down last Sunday morning to Terrence's home and and my car has just been giving me fits for the last several years. And many of you just laugh at me because I haven't had air conditioning in my car for about three, four years. Every light about check engine has been on for years. But I'm just milking this thing out. I want to, it's a personal goal. I've got to get this vehicle to 200,000 miles. I'm at 199. And I get off uh, 5 South on L Street where he's at in Chula Vista. And I'm, I'm, I'm careening about 50 miles an hour off the exit. I probably should have been going about 15 exiting. And suddenly the car just shuts off and I got no steering and I'm headed for the drink, whatever that body of water is, river. And I, I prayed a theological prayer. Help! Car turns on. I turn out. I get off the exit and then it just dies and it took me another 15 times. It went 10 feet. I turned it off. It would stop. And I finally rolled into his driveway and it died a death. We should say cottage for my car. It's been 17 years. But Terrence, being a great neighbor, he says, oh, let's just go on our, you know, let's do our workout. I'll get you on Carfax. We'll have a car for you by the end of the day. Well, we actually got on Carfax. I had a, I had a car by noon in his neighborhood from a believer. Uh, who, and we had a great time sharing the Messiah with him as well. God gave me a great deal. Really did. He was acting like a neighbor. Yes, a great deal was like keeping my life. Yes, that was a great deal. But he got involved. 
And I appreciate that, helping me out there. Finally, we find the attitude of the Samaritan. Here's his attitude. Well, what's mine is mine, but I'll share it. Now, the Samaritan was the least likely, right, of these three travelers to offer help, but he did so. Yeshua, uh, you recall a month ago or so in chapter 9 that I shared about the Samaritans a little bit. The Samaritans, you recall, were a mixed race of descendants that originated actually from intermarriage between uh, the Israelites who were left behind when our people were conquered and exiled back by the Assyrians in 722 BCE, and the people were the pagans of other nations who were brought into the land by the Assyrians. So they're the intermarriage mixture here. They formed their own religion, the Samaritans. There was a kind of a mixture between, it's a hybrid between Judaism and paganism. They actually adopted the five books of Moses as the sole sacred text and taught, though, that Messiah was no greater than Moses. And so when the Jewish people come back and return to their homeland, Many years later, they actually rejected the Samaritans' help in rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And the breach between these peoples became permanent, continuing on to the day when the Jewish king John Hyrcanus destroyed the Samaritan temple in the 2nd century BCE. Yet, the Rachamim, the compassion that the Samaritan felt, overcame all that racial prejudice, hello, that he may have felt against the Jewish people. And this beaten man, he too injured to even walk, no doubt this man was Jewish. Again, there had been division, there had been hatred between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. So Yeshua's lawyer here would probably have prescribed or subscribed to the prevailing low opinion of Samaritans among Jews and could be expected to think, hey, if the priest and the Levite refuse the man aid, how much more this mistrustful Samaritan also refuse him aid? But this kind Samaritan, he's different. He showed his love and rachamim to a total stranger and one with whom he normally would have had no relation, no relationship. So the Samaritan's rachamim contrasts here with the callousness of the Kohen and the Levite toward one of their own neighbors. And what happens? His rachamim leads the Samaritan to take action to help this sufferer. What did he do? Olive oil, soothing the victim's wounds. Wine, disinfecting those wounds. Combined, these were household remedies for wounds, and they weren't cheap. The genuineness of the Samaritan's love is clear here from his provision of further care. It says the next day, you see, it costs about one-twelfth of a denarius to live for a day. So the, the gift here from the Samaritan exceeds the man's need many times over. And Yeshua then applied the teaching of the parable to the lawyer by asking him, quote, which of these three passers-by behaved as a neighbor? So you see what he's doing here? He's reversing the lawyer's question in verse 29 and focusing attention where it should have been on the subject showing love rather than the object receiving it. You see, the lawyer wants to know if he can be a neighbor to a, a select elite few, right? Yeshua tells him from the Samaritan's example, let the neighbor be you. And so the answer to Yeshua's question, it's obvious, it's simple. The lawyer seems to have understood the point here of the parable, but because he did not describe the true neighbor as the Samaritan, but, quote, as the one who showed mercy to him. He gets it. And thus Yeshua showed that the real test, here's the real test, my friends, of love is action, not just profession. For by your good Deeds you would put to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. When the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America got a download from the Lord in 1996 concerning the day is coming for Israel, the Lord revealed 
what is now known as the Joseph Project to our general secretary, and he gave him that verse from 1 Peter regarding doing good to silence the talk of foolish men, and we began to work, and by the year 2000, we had, begin, we had begun to import aid into Israel. Israel knew nothing of imported humanitarian aid. They just knew shekels. They just knew money. They didn't understand when big ships of mercy would come in with, with goods from Walmart and Target and medical supplies from Baylor Medical Center and all of these things, for by your good deeds, you would put the silence, the ignorant talk of foolish men, bulletproof glass for the IDF, and all kinds of things, and it began to open up the country for the gospel to go forth. Aid was given to Arabs as well as Israeli Jews. Impartial, for by your good deeds you would put to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Talmudim learned here that God's demands are impossible to keep perfectly, so they needed to cast themselves on his mercy if they hoped to gain eternal life. Love is action and not just profession. I've been so blessed over the last several months. We had, Kathy was up here a month ago or so, and she, we, we put the need out, man. She needed an extreme makeover in her house. Not, not to that extent, but a lot of work. And a bunch of you guys just stepped and like went beyond what all I could even think of your time and your abilities. And praise God. Now, there's still work to be done, but praise, and, and, and other people as well are, are, are anonymously donated when they hear of a need through the, through the app of a family in need. And I praise God for that. We're acting in love, not just professing. And so this is the attitude Yeshua said each of us should go exhibit. He said to the lawyer, go and you do the same. Now, I don't believe this is a coincidence, by the way, that Yeshua makes the hero here a Samaritan. Do you? The disciples back in chapter 9 are ready to call fire down on one of the villages of the Samaritans. <laughs> and so with the Samaritan playing the positive role here, and a Kohen and a Levite in the negative role, Yeshua's parable would have been shocking. It shows the extreme universality of the term neighbor and demonstrates the depth of rachamim, of compassion, of mercy that should be extended to all people. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Look around you. We've got a lot of nations here. I think it's the hallmark of every Messianic congregation in the world. Jews and Gentiles, Hispanics, African Americans, Asian. It's the whole melting pot. And we all got to get along. It's a miracle that it can take place. I often joke that if Messianic Jewish congregations were solely made up of Jewish people, solely Jews, and there are some Messianic leaders that want to see that happen and have made moves, and it, it galls me to, to see it and hear it. But if we were all just Jewish people here, we would never have made it to year number two. Just saying, it, two Jews, three opinions. Two Messianic Jews, four or five opinions. We need some non-Jews to kind of tell us, guys, chill, relax a little bit. Now, I'm joking, of course. Maybe I'm joking. Clearly, the parable is meant to expand our definition of neighbor, so we will understand who we ought to love as ourselves. Notice that Messiah never really answers the question here, who is my neighbor? Instead, he basically told the lawyer, reach out and be a neighbor. I think there's some application. What happens when we do this? What happens when we do what the Samaritan did here? Well, number one, our intentional acts of rachamim, of compassion, again, will open closed hearts. I cannot tell you how many people in Israel receiving aid from the Joseph Project, they want to know why are we doing this? Of course, we give all glory to God, but it opens their closed because there's so much crime in our world and hatred. People have been cynical. People are skeptical, right? We're afraid of being conned and scammed. How many of you receive? It shows up on your phones now, spam risk. 
You know, when they come in, it's always a con. You know, I fell for one of them early on a couple of years ago. It came up AT&T on my phone. You ever had that come up on your phone? Oh, it's, it's my provider, you know. And, and I call, I answer, and hello, this is Joel, and so on. And it was a total scam. And they got, you know, some piece of information, and I hung up, and I knew what had happened right when I hung up, and I had to change all my passwords and all this stuff. I'm much wiser. To, but we're skeptical, right? Now, that's a real handicap when we're out there trying to share the love of Messiah with people. Why? Because they think we've got a, an ulterior motive. Oftentimes, I have found, and I'm sure you have as well, that before we can give people the word of God, we have to show them love. We have to show them compassion to soften their hearts, to open their hearts. Acts of kindness and rachamim will melt cold hearts, and they will open hard hearts. Secondly, these intentional acts of rachamim correct the popular perception of what it is to be a follower of Yeshua. People need to see that we as Yeshua's disciples, are, as his talmidim, are willing to be servants, not elitists. Yeshua said the greatest defining mark of a disciple is loving one another. Third, these intentional acts of rachamim plant seeds for the kingdom. What is the point of these acts of kindness and rachamim? We're simply trying to fulfill the great commission of Yeshua. Karina was the first one to say, amen, she is a realtor. She knows about great commissions. I'm hoping you do anyway. But this is the great commission of Yeshua, to make disciples of everyone. Adonai is the only one who gets the glory. But there are different methods to evangelize. How many of you know evangelism is a team process? Our acts of kindness and rachamim will plant seeds of the kingdom in the hearts of pre-believers. You see, you may have planted the seed. Maybe you're out there this afternoon at Balboa Park with Magdalene and Robert and others, and you're planting a seed. Maybe I come along later in that process as an example, and I water the seed. But it is Adonai who saves. Finally, our intentional acts of rachamim point people to God's love. You see, if you and I do an act of kindness in our own name, we don't give God the credit. We haven't pointed people to him. They must know that our act of kindness and rachamim was motivated by the love of God. My friends, there are hurting people out there outside of these doors who need God's love. They aren't going to open a Bible. They're not going to attend a congregation. They aren't going to watch Yeshua-centered television or online content. We, as often is said, we might be the only example of God's love that they see. And so as we conclude this section here, the question posed to us is this. How can we be a neighbor? Well, it takes eyes and ears, to, but it takes more than that. It takes a compassionate heart. Now, maybe we can't help everyone, but we can help somewhere. And we can try and do a meaningful service for someone. Being a neighbor does not require meeting every need, my friends, of which we become aware. And even in a congregation of 75 or 100, there are a lot of needs. But of becoming one piece of a large puzzle that helps meaning in a specific context. And I love, when I see that working at this congregation, I love that. I'll call my brother Jeff. Hey, do you got a phone number for a, for a guy to fix my dryer? And he's just part of a puzzle. He's connecting pieces. We're all in that connecting pieces. Some guys will actually be swinging hammers. But some guys will just be the middlemen to kind of connect. Whatever it is, your part, be a piece in that puzzle. Neighborly comes in all shapes and sizes. Now let's look at the next section of Scripture because it's related. Luke, I believe he's placed this immediately uh, here after this preceding parable as a, a safeguard against maybe some of his readers thinking or coming under the misunderstanding that somehow salvation is by works. And so as we work our way through this, 
next and final section, we will, we're going to see highlighted that Adonai has built uh, what we could call rest stops in this road of discipleship. It is essential we make these rest stops a part, an important part of our lives. Regular times of reflection and, and prayer. I will encourage you men, especially men. We've been having prayer meetings here on Tuesday nights, and every single one of them has been different. We don't plan them out ahead of time. I just give a kind of a two-minute encouraging word, and we just lock and load in prayer. But I'm telling you something. It is so exciting. And I know some of you guys that have been there with us, you could say the same thing. I'm telling you, I'm being stirred up in my own prayer life. I'm getting more organized. I'm getting more focused with the Lord. And I just want to encourage you guys, 815 to 915s. We find Yeshua and his disciples here taking one of the rest stops as they journey to Jerusalem. Regular times of prayer, regular times of reflection, meditating, reading of the scriptures, refreshment in the presence of the Lord. These are all vital things, my friends, in our messianic walk. They stop at the home of Martha and Miriam for food and rest, but in these verses find that Miriam is taking a rest stop at the feet of Yeshua. And so Miriam here becomes an example to all of us of our need for rest stops on that road of discipleship. Three necessities for our lives are brought forward in these next several verses. Let's read them together. Let's begin in verse 38. Now, while they were traveling, Yeshua entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Miriam, who was seated at the master's feet, listening to his teaching. Necessity number one, as we already see, we must take time to listen to Messiah. We continue to see Yeshua is moving toward Jerusalem. He's moving toward the fulfillment of his mission. And now we know from the scriptures, by the way, that this is a certain village. This is the village of Beit Anya or Bethany, less than two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And so when they enter this village, a woman named Martha opens her home to Yeshua. And we might wonder, or maybe you've wondered, did Yeshua already know Martha? Or was this the first time that they met? Well, it's possible that this was their first time meeting. If so, it was the beginning of a wonderful friendship. Apparently, Yeshua stayed there a number of times. He became good friends with both Martha and Miriam. He also got to know their brother pretty well, Lazarus. The Gospel of Yochanan elaborates on Yeshua's relationship with all three. And next in the text, we meet Miriam, Martha's sister. Have you ever wondered who was older, who was younger? Well, we're not specifically told here, but I would guess Martha was the older one. Luke specifically says the house belonged to her rather than to Miriam. In any event, just something, you know, we might think about. We see that by sitting at Yeshua's feet, Miriam was showing her desire to learn. Actually, she's taking the traditional place of a disciple. And notice how Yeshua commends her for this. This is significant, by the way. Don't miss this. It's significant because Jewish teachers were generally opposed to women learning from the rabbis or other teachers in this. And Luke writes that Miriam sat at Yeshua's feet listening to his teaching. This is the first essential step to taking rest stops on the road of discipleship. We must, we must, must time to listen to Messiah. You see a rest stop. What's a rest stop? It's not a break from the daily routine in life. It is not that. It is a refueling for the journey. We must take time to draw near to Yeshua, to sit at his feet, to let and to allow him to teach us. How do we do that? Through careful teaching of the word of God, careful reading of it, and through prayer. Secondly, look at verse 40 with me. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So she approached Yeshua and said, Master, doesn't it concern you that my sister has left me to serve alone? Then tell her to help me. 
<laughs> Principle number two, we must beware of distraction. Now, the word that is translated here, distracted, in this verse, perispao, is a word that means to be pulled or to be dragged away. It's the picture of someone being you know, pulled in so many directions, and we relate to this in 21st century America all too well, how many different demands on us and concerns compete for our attention on a daily basis. A lot. Our work needs this. spouse needs that. The kids need this. The house needs that. Until we are totally, we could call this the Martha syndrome. What was it that distracted Martha here? Luke tells us that she was, quote, distracted with much serving. How many times do we get caught up in things that just have to be done? It's so easy to deceive ourselves, and it's easy to deceive others with our busyness. Oh, I am guilty. Somehow, we feel more important when we're busy. We often give in to what Charles Hummel coined the tyranny of the... Martha was distracted with much serving. You see, Yeshua had brought many disciples to feed. And her labor represents the best display of devotion that she knows how to offer. But can serving distract us from Yeshua? You bet. It sounds weird at first, but it can happen. It is possible, my friends, to get so wrapped up in serving God that we forget to love God and we forget to spend time. Now, Martha wasn't involved in wrong things, bad things. She wasn't engaged in any sinful activity. She was serving. What could be wrong with that? No, Martha's problem was that she was distracted in her serving. She was missing what Yeshua had for her that she was missing the joy of sitting at Yeshua's feet and joy, hearing his word. That is life itself. She's traveling on this road of discipleship without taking time for rest stops. Look at what she says next. Master, doesn't it concern you that my sister has left me to serve alone? And that is Martha's problem in a nutshell. Martha was serving Yeshua alone. And whenever you and I do that, whenever you and I minister or serve in our own strength, guilty Lord, we will get burned out. I've seen it happen. How often do we seek the, to serve the Lord alone without stopping, without stopping to just refresh ourselves in the presence of the Lord, without taking rest stops that are so doggone spiritually vital in our lives, so vital to even the service that we're rendering our... You see, Martha thought Miriam was the problem, but the problem was not with Miriam. The real problem was that Martha had left Yeshua out. Martha was serving alone. That's not Miriam's fault. That's Martha's fault. Martha needed to take a rest stop at Yeshua's feet. And she's so frustrated by all of this. Listen to her. She's actually barking out a command at Yeshua. Tell her to help me. Martha wanted Yeshua to assist her in her plan. Hello. Rather than to learn of Yeshua's plans from him as Miriam. And so it is a request that Yeshua, with a smile, probably has to deny. Yeshua will not refuse Miriam her rest stop. He cannot tell Miriam to leave, but he can minister to Martha. And finally, look at verse 41 and 42. But answering her, the Lord said, Martha, Marcia, Marcia, Martha, 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 you are anxious and bothered about many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Miriam has chosen the good part, which will not be taken. Point number three, must choose one thing. And so the truth comes out. Martha is not just upset about Miriam not helping. She's worried and she is upset about many. She has a whole boatload of worries and concerns on her brain. 
Isn't that like us? How often do we dump on someone else over something so small when in reality, what's going on? We're so upset about so many lots of other unrelated stuff, and we reach a saturation point, and so we just unload on whoever happens to be nearby. And men, that often is our wives when we come home, and they, we just unload. It has nothing to do with her, but we're at that saturation point. We're dumping on we're overwhelmed with all these unrelated things. Martha was worried and upset about many things, the scriptures tell us. Yeshua reached out to her with a gentle rebuke, but in rachamim, in compassion. Understand that Yeshua has rachamim for us when we get to that point. Usually it's about on a Wednesday when we are stressed out by the load of too many things. And it is at that time And at those times when we need to hear these words that Yeshua speaks to Martha as words spoken to us as well. You are anxious and you are bothered about many things, but only one thing is necessary. We need to hear that. I need to hear that. But notice what Yeshua did not say. He did not say that only one thing was right or that only one thing was important. No, Yeshua nowhere condemns Martha here for her service to him. What she was doing was not wrong, my friends. What she was doing was not unimportant, my friends. Rather, only one thing was truly necessary. Yeshua says only one thing is really necessary, and that is spent time with him, worshiping, listening, and learning from the word of God. My friends, before you and I can truly give to others, we must first receive from the Lord. Years ago, a rabbinic colleague of mine was praying over me, as he did many in his lifetime of me. And he said, you've got, you've got to learn how to receive, like a revelation. You can't give unless you can receive. And Yeshua tells Martha, for Miriam has chosen the good part. My friends, there are so many things we can choose, in, but have we chosen the good part? Have we chosen what is better? We all have limited time. We all have limited resources in our lives, which means you and I have to be selective. We have to learn that two-letter word no we have to learn how to say that sometime what will we listen to what will we read what will we watch what will we learn how will we spend our time we can't do it all so we have to choose now some commentators on this passage will try and set up a choice for the reader will you choose to be miriam or martha will you choose to sit or will you choose to serve that's a false choice both are important but we must let our service grow out of our sitting we sit at the Messiah's feet and we learn from him, we will not serve Messiah less. I have seen that we will serve him better. Yeshua tells Martha, for Miriam has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. And we see here in those words of Yeshua that Miriam's time spent at his feet would not go to waste. Hear me, it's not wasteful. But Yeshua implies here that Martha's frenzied activity was being wasted. That Martha had wrongly judged Miriam's inaction and that Martha's worrying too much about what other people are doing. That Martha's actions did not have any lasting value. Why not? Because they didn't derive from the center, from Messiah's strength and his presence and his guidance. You see, when ministry for Yeshua becomes a substitute for a relationship with Yeshua, that loses eternal value. Discipleship sometimes requires that tasks, and I am like you, I'm ta- man, I am a task-oriented guy. But sometimes the Lord says, suspend the task. Fellowship is more important. But Lord, look at this list. Suspend the list. Fellowship is more important. And so discipleship is a combination, isn't it? If you'd stand with me today, it's a 
balanced combination of both service and reflection. It is a great temptation to serve at the expense of being fed spiritually. There is a time to work and there is a time to listen. And unfortunately, often when things, as they often do every day, get busy, the first thing to go is our time spent with the Lord. But before activity can be meaningful and done with with sensitivity, it should, it has to be bathed in prayer. I suspect many of us in this room could use a little more Miriam and a little less Martha. Leaves us with a couple of questions today from this text. As we move into this week, number one, did Miriam and Martha learn their lessons? Well, I believe they did. Why? Six days before Yeshua was crucified, he's in Martha's home again. John chapter 12. Her brother Lazarus, who had just been raised from the dead, he's there too. And Martha was preparing and serving the meal. Where was Miriam? Same place at the feet of Yeshua once again. But did Martha complain then? No. She was happy to be doing what she was doing. And she was happy for Miriam in doing what she was doing. Did Miriam just sit and listen? No. She worked. She took a container, you recall, of expensive perfume, lovingly cleaned Yeshua's feet, wiped them with her hair. But there was a complaint there, however. Judas, right? Yehuda from Kriot complained about the waste of money. But Yeshua said, leave her alone. She's done a good work. He explained she's actually anointing his body for burial. And only a week before the crucifixion, Miriam was the only one. She's the only one that really seemed to understand that Yeshua was going to die. Why was she the only one clued in? She spent time at the feet of Yeshua listening to him. If you want to move forward in life and figure out what life we've got to spend time with Yeshua I'm telling you I am a hard case my friends and maybe some of you are like me you're so type a if you got the spilkas if you've got to sit down for like more than five minutes and do nothing but receive from God you know you, you get anxious you got the spilkas you just you just can't stay still question number two how's your spiritual life these days are you taking the time you need for rest stops on the road to disciples this is the one thing necessary This is actually the start of a beautiful, beautiful cycle, my friends. Worship that leads to work, that leads to worship, that leads to work, that leads to worship, that leads to simple stuff. Hard to really, really. So, Father, I thank you today for this parable, these instructions. Lord, let us not be caught up in the Martha syndrome. Lord, whether it's in the early morning hours or maybe in the hours before we go to sleep, Lord, let us spend daily time with you, hearing from you, sitting at your feet, listening to your teaching through your word and in fellowship with you, communing with you in prayer because we recognize that service is better when we do it the right way. I thank you for those here in this room and those listening and watching that as they even spend the time here, the rest stop called tree of life before they hit the highways and byways of their week, that they would serve better because they've done it Yeshua's way. Father, we love you. In the words of Aaron, who said to his brother Moses how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel. We conclude each of our services every week with this ironic blessing. It's not my blessing, it's the Lord's blessing. That we would take to heart this message of rachamim and rest as we go into this week. Thank you, Lord. We recognize who our neighbor is. It's everyone. May we have an opportunity this week to bless even a stranger. Maybe it's paying for their meal in that fast food line for the vehicle behind it. Whatever we can do, Lord. Let's begin again this week, sitting at your feet, serving well, opening up hearts for those who don't know you by our acts of service so that the word of God can have free course. And so we say over you as the scriptures 
Declare it. Adonai Ye'er Adonai pan vilecha vichuneka. Yisa Adonai pan vilecha viasemlecha shalom. May Adonai bless you and keep you this week. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you in the name of the Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth, and all of us who are with him said, Amen, Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shavua Tov. Spend some time in our bookstore, and we'll meet you out there for Kiddush. Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.